Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone is keeping warm as the chillier nights start to draw in. I have to admit, I did put the heating on last week. In this episode, our showing editor Alex Robinson speaks to Ellis Taverna Burns, who fills us in on what gave the politician the edge to stand supreme at the recent BSPS Championships. It was his gallop that always, I would say, won it for him. He's got an amazing gallop and every time he pulls it out, the judge is just wowed by him. I'll also be joined by some of my horse and hound colleagues to discuss resumption of hunting, urination in stables, the harvest, and the challenges that the Riding for the Disabled Association is currently facing. And finally, Alan Davies, groomed to dressage superstars Carl Hester and Charlotte Dujardin, shares his invaluable advice for keeping horses happy and healthy at this time of year. Seasons change and then things change with the horse's regime and everything, it can be tricky. So you really have to think about changing the management completely. So that's enough from me. Check your girth and let's get going. So hi, welcome to this week's guest interview on the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Alex Robinson, the showing editor. And today I'm here with Ellis Taverner-Burns. She's just come back from the BSPS Summer Championships at Arena UK, where she stood overall supreme of show uh, with her new ride, this is the intermediate, the politician, and he's known at home as Smithy. So hi, Ellis. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Great. Um, so Ellis is part of Team Harvey, and she's won so many titles on ponies over her career so far, including championships at Hoy's. She's won at the Royal International. The list goes on, really. So Ellis, uh, last weekend we had a very wet show at Arena UK. I think it rained for two out of the three days. It must have been a nightmare for you guys with all those ponies. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Thank God on the Sunday was the only day that was dry. So we, uh, we were happy for the Supreme and we stayed dry. Didn't have to change clothes or anything. So it was good. And how many ponies did you take down? Um, so John took one on the Friday, two on the Saturday, and one on the Sunday. And I only went on the Sunday, so oh, nice. that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned John there, and John is, of course, the lead producer um, at Team Harvey. So moving on to Smithy, he's um, 13 years old this year, and he, he's done a lot in the show ring before, and he's won quite a lot of titles as an intermediate and as a small hunter, including at the Royal International with your sister Greer. So, so how long have you been riding him? So he, um, someone else brought him in July and they asked me to have the riding intermediates because she's older, that, that's Sarah. So she's going to ride him in the small hunter. So I got the intermediate ride on him. So I've obviously ridden him a few times at home and worked him in for my sisters and things. But the first time we properly partnership was about three weeks ago when John said, do you want to ride him at BSPS? Oh, lovely. So we've only been together for about three four weeks oh brilliant and, and what do you think does make him so special because at 13 i mean a lot of show horses um they start their careers as early as four but what do you think's given him this longevity in the show ring he's just such a well-known horse he has no wear and tear on him considering how old he is which helps him get them confirmation marks still staying high he just performs like his own he just takes everyone around the ring showing himself off he just loves his job really 
Oh, lovely. And, and what's he like at home? Does he have any quirks or kind of special characteristics? He's always got a character, always banging <laughs> on the door for his food and everything. But he's a good boy. He's exactly the same as he would be at a show to home. He just sits there and does whatever you ask him to, bless him. Oh, lovely. And and at the champs, um, so he went right through the card and was supreme intermediate before before winning the overall title. How, how did he perform at the BSPS and did you pull any tricks out of the bag yourself as a rider? He was just amazing, to be fair. Considering it's our first show together, he took me round like there was nothing new. He just uh, carried on like it was normal. And he <laughs> in the Supreme, he just... It was his gallop that always, I would say, won it for him. He's mm -hmm. got an amazing gallop, and every time he pulls it out, he just the judge is just wowed by him. We did. Uh, everyone said we did a lovely show in the Supreme, so I guess, and so did uh, the judge Philip Hilton in the Horse and Hound online review. Yeah. So I guess that's just what won it for him. He does just sit there and go and show off himself. Oh, brilliant! Uh, and what's your plans for next season with him? Um, so I've got the ride on him in the intermediates and I guess we'll just, it's not, I don't really need to build a partnership with him as such. So I guess John will just pick and choose the shows where it's a good judge for him so he can get his qualifications. And I think it'll more be the reins to Sarah to practice and build a partnership with him. Brilliant. And um, do you have any other kind of exciting ponies you're planning on bringing out next season? Any new faces we should maybe know about? Um, not at the moment. I've got my old 14-2, the grey, who was who was actually Show Pony Supreme at uh, BSPS last year. Ah, what's his name? Uh, Small and Dream Maker, oh, yeah. Joey. Mm -hmm. And I think he will hopefully do some intermediates with me, just because he's amazing and I don't want to let him go just yet. <laughs> So, uh, but not at the minute, not sure what's in store yet, but I'm sure I have something else. Well, thank you so much, Alice. That has been amazing and we can't wait to watch you and Smithy throughout this year and going into next. Thanks so much. Thank you. So today I'm joined by two familiar faces from our news team, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hello, Eleanor. Hiya. And our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hi, Lucy. Hello. We're also joined by a member of the Horse and Hound team who is making their Horse and Hound podcast debut today, our hunting editor, Catherine Austin. Hello, Catherine. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Pippa. Thanks for having me. How has everybody's week been? Eleanor, tell us, what have you been up to first up? Well, I went for a lesson on Sunday. Um, I thought I'd probably better try jumping in my new saddle because I'd been to a show without practising in it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and was being almost pinged off all over the place and so yeah I went for my lesson and I seem to have forgotten how to ride so that's always a bonus um you would have thought that I would have been rusty straight after lockdown rather than now but I was fine straight after lockdown and now I have forgotten how to ride <laughs> that doesn't sound ideal I hope that the lesson it reminded you how to ride <laughs> yeah my long-suffering trainer bless him uh, always does a great job but it was all fun <laughs> oh well done and what about you Lucy so um, was it Sunday? It was that most beautiful autumn, sunny day uh, where we were. And I thought I'd take my lovely horse for a bit of a pipe opener. And that was, it was just one of those days where you sort of remember why you ride really. And it was sunny, but not too hot. And just the ground was nice. And, and then on our way back, we, um, we sort of hacked back and we went blackberry picking, which just the whole thing was really quite Enid Blyton. Uh, but it was just sort of, it was just wonderful really. Again, and sort of one for me, one for the horse. And 
it just felt amazing and it sort of reminded me why you go through all that winter of mucking out and all the sort of strangeness that's been going on this year it was really nice to forget all about that and just go back to to why we do it really Mm, it's interesting isn't it you know how we often say it's the small things with horses and you mm. often had obviously had that experience this week and I did as well actually because uh, on Wednesday I was schooling the horse I share with my mum and I managed to achieve like two transitions upwards into canter where he stayed in a round outline and that doesn't sound like very much and I'm sure it's something that lots of people do every single day on lots of different horses but it's literally in three years feels like the first time we've achieved an upward canter transition where he hasn't stuck his head in the air and poked his nose out um, which is obviously not the aim of dressage so I exactly like you I rode home thinking it really is worth it when uh, when you achieve something like that which is lovely whether it's blackberry picking or keeping your nose in in a canter transition Catherine coming over to you the horse and hand podcast isn't your only first this week is it what have you been doing I have taken my lovely new horse autumn hunting for the first time and was he well behaved he was exceptionally well behaved. He should be. He's a very experienced hunter. He's only new to me. He arrived here about six weeks ago, but I'm a very lucky girl. He is lovely and he was so well behaved and but fun, not boring, very fun, quite um, pleased to be out, quite excited, but in a very gentlemanly fashion. And having had 13 years of hunting the great Molly Austin, who um, I lost this summer, no disrespect to her wonderful memory, but having a horse that behaves itself, doesn't leap on top of everybody, rub themselves against everybody, generally cause complete chaos, was um, <laughs> a real treat and something rather lovely. I do remember the early days of Molly Austin when uh, we were all in an office together and you and I used to to go off outside and have a chat about what had happened this weekend and there was always sort of some disaster and I think she did become slightly more muted in her older age but she never she certainly never became stayed. No she was awesome and she was a proper rocket to hunt and wonderful but I, I don't think I ever got it very far on the manners front. And um, autumn hunting for her was something that it took a long time for her to understand that it was a slower paced, steadier kind of activity because she was just thinking, OK, let's go, let's go, let's go, which didn't make for a very restful time for me or anybody else. Whereas the <laughs> new boy, Flynn, takes it all in his stride. He's like, yeah, it's cool to be out, but I know what I'm doing. That's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that Finn is uh, behaving himself and, and giving you a nice, hopefully slightly easier ride, maybe. And that leads on to the story that you've been working on this week, which is about resumption of hunting activities and the guidelines for hunts to do that safely with COVID-19 in mind. Catherine, what have the hunting office been doing around this? The hunting office have spent a lot of time planning, understanding regulations, communicating with hunts and putting in place practices that should ensure that we can all have a safe and responsible hunting season. And obviously then communicating that out to hunts has presumably been a big job too. Yes, exactly. But, you know, the hunting office has excellent communications with each individual hunt and the people within those hunts and They've done a lot and luckily for September, the guidelines issued to hunt means that larger groups of people can attend hound exercise or any other activity organised by a hunt. Hunts have to follow strict protocols within government guidelines and do a lot of a lot of form filling, a lot of safety planning, a lot of careful thinking 
but um, it, it all will work and it's all highly organized. Each hunt has to complete um, an event delivery plan for each individual day's hunting. They have to complete a COVID-19 secure risk assessment. They have attended webinars and I think they're very well organized. Mm, that's really good to hear. And for people who are, who are going out hunting this autumn, in what ways will hunting look different in order to keep everyone safe? I'm not sure that it will look very much different. There are various things that people will have to do that they haven't done before. You have to book in um, well in advance of each day's hunting. No thinking at three o'clock in the morning. Oh, I might go hunting today. The hunts have booking systems. And then when I turned up the other day, there were COVID marshals and COVID officers who check you off and foot followers have to book in as well as mounted followers. There are COVID officers who are there to remind you about social distancing. And we were all told to carry face masks in our pockets in case a situation arose in which the wearing of one was necessary. Hopefully it wouldn't do so. Um, hand sanitizer is available and people are encouraged to bring their own, obviously, as we all do these days. But I'm not sure that the actual look of autumn hunting will change that much, which is nice. We don't, you don't really have meets at this time of year anyway. Everyone gets on, hounds move off and you follow. I would doubt that we will have meets within the open season, possibly, but it's too early to tell about that, really. Interesting to hear, and it seems like hand sanitizer is a list needs to be added to the list of things that people will put in their pocket for going hunting with the you know all the other essentials that we're always used to hearing about. And Catherine, I thought it was interesting reading your story that there are a couple of advantages that hunting sort of has already in getting going compared to some other activities. In what ways does hunting already have some advantages? Well, it takes place outdoors in the fresh air. It takes place in rural locations where the incidence of COVID-19 is lower. And due to the nature of riding horses in groups, those of us mounted have always been aware and respectful of distance, haven't we? You know, it's not very sensible to get close, too close to someone else's horse out hunting. It's very easy, I think, to socially distance out hunting. The vast majority of people would wear gloves anyway. Uh, if you open a gate, you're going to be wearing those gloves. Things like that, I think. Mm, you're right. You know, that's as you say, it's it's natural to keep a safe distance when you're on a horse if you don't want your horse to get kicked or or bitten or or, or to kick or bite someone else's horse. So uh, that's a good start. And and as you say, social distancing is quite a natural process when you're riding. It doesn't feel awkward as it sometimes can on your feet. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really interesting to hear from you on this story. My pleasure. Moving on to you, Eleanor, you said last week in the news meeting that it's not often you get to write the word weeing on the news list. So we all need to know, why did you have to write weeing on the news list? What's this all about? Yeah, and it wasn't just that that was what we had to bring the meeting to an end for, for a comfort break. Um, <laughs> this was about, there's been a number of cases uh, over the years and a couple of recent ones about where horses have given positive dope test and it has been found that the cause is a person who had taken some medication weighing in the horse's stable and so this one was uh, went to the FEI tribunal it's an Italian dressage rider called Pierluigi San Giorgi and it was found that his horse tested positive for a drug which is used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorders in humans and it turned out that his groom and it was confirmed by the doctor his groom had been prescribed this medicine 
hand that been weighing in the horse's stable all week. Mm, and that's the second the second case that's come up recently where a human urinating in the stable has, has proved to be the to be the reason, isn't it? Yeah, so there was another one that actually first went uh, came up in February and the rider, Nadia Peter Steiner, took the case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and at first she had thought the contamination was because the horse had licked someone's hand but then it turned out that the lorry driver had been taking tramadol painkiller for back pain and he'd been weeing in the lorry and Eleanor I see as well in your story that there's a vote at the General Assembly in November around contamination cases what's the detail on that so the FEI is is proposing that there should be more flexibility for uh, sanctions in contamination cases so which I think will be really interesting because we've have done a lot on um, the dangers of contamination and how easily a horse's positive sample can be a result of a horse, you know, breathing something in or, or being handled by a person who's used uh, something that's banned. So it'll be interesting to see what will happen with that. But also the, the FEI tribunal in this most recent case did strongly recommend um, that the that the FEI and those who are expected to educate other people take some action on this and the FEI has now uh, contacted all its registered riders and national federations to reinforce how dangerous it weeing in a stable can be. Mm, and presumably then the onus is on riders to to pass that on to anyone who's driving their lorry, transporting their horses, their grooms and, and so on and Presumably the takeaway here is that uh, if, if you need a wee, find a port don't go in the stable. Doping is a very serious matter and there can be very long-term and serious consequences for a rider's career. So although it's a, a bit of an off-the-wall story, it, it's got a serious message. Lucy, you're our farming expert this week because you've been looking at a story about the harvest, haven't you? And it looks like this is going to be quite a difficult year for farmers. Yes, that's right, Pippa. And if you've been keeping an eye on the mainstream news as well, you might well have seen it written in there. Or if you live in the countryside and speak to farmers or on social media, you will have seen that quite a lot of farmers this year are having quite a challenging harvest. And that's been sort of compounded by three reasons, really. Uh, as you might remember, there was a lot of heavy rain in the winter, and then that was followed by an exceptionally dry spring. And then just as harvest was sort of underway, we had quite a period of unsettled weather as well. So there's been sort of a triple triple hit to quite a lot of farmers there, which is making life quite a challenge for, for a lot of them. Mm, it's a funny one. I feel like because the, this year has been so strange in so many ways, I haven't really noticed the weather, but it's interesting to hear that it really is having an impact. Mm. And just to be clear, why does the harvest matter to horse owners? So again, this is something I wanted to get across in this story as well, was I don't, the last thing I want to do is to scaremonger, but also I don't want to take away from the challenge, the real challenge that a lot of farmers are having at the moment. And of course, Straw is very commonly used bedding for horses and grains, animal feed as well. And then separate to that as well, but slightly connected in that it grows, <laughs> is, is hay and sort of the impact that's having on that. So it's something I think that horse owners need to be aware of in the same way that the general public. I mean, this story was the front page of the Times last week as well, the sort of impact it may have on, on bread prices as well. And while several farmers you know were saying about the impact it has had on them others were saying you know of course their harvest isn't fully in yet and the dangers of hypothesizing or scaremongering around prices and what that might have so i think the message really is just to just something to be aware of um, more than more than anything mm, and there was also some advice in your story about having good relationships with you know your local farmer or whoever you're, you're getting your forage and bedding from and that's maybe something that the owners need to build up over the long term to make sure that they can get can get what they need for their horses 
Yes, that was very much the the, the key message uh, from the people that I was speaking to was because I was asking what you know what, what should horse owners be doing now? Is this something to worry about? Is this something that we should just be aware of, or is this something we can ignore? And the main message I got was the most important thing you can do is to build those strong relationships with your suppliers and be understanding of what the situation is. So prepare ahead where you can and just sort of really nurture those relationships and get your orders in early so you're not panicking at the last minute and then putting stress on your suppliers as well. I think that's probably just a good message for for any any sort of business, whatever you're buying, but sort of particularly at the moment with, with forage and bedding this year. Mm, I feel like that's uh, something I've learned about human food this year as well with the Mm. supermarket sweep having taken everything off the shelves earlier this year and shortages of pasta and loo roll and all sorts. I think buying early where you can is a a lesson for life, isn't it? Yeah, there was no sort of indication that there's going to be a shortage, uh, I should just say, that as well. And again, harvest isn't fully in yet, but yeah, like you said it's never never a bad thing to be prepared and to and to look after the people that you're working with mm, I remember well when I was a kid that my mum would always be really stressed about getting her field shelter full of hay in the summer uh, and uh, would be really worried until we'd uh, we'd managed to get that that load of hay in so something I, I definitely remember from my horsey childhood thank you Lucy for bringing us up to speed on that story Eleanor, I'm coming back to you for our final topic of today on this news segment, which is about the Riding for the Disabled Association. Who have you been talking to on this story and and, and what are they saying? Yeah, so this sort of occurred to us last week that with everything, uh, you know, nothing is obviously back to normal, but with all the other disciplines or most of the other disciplines being able to get back to some sort of competition and and people are riding and doing things again, but actually the, the Riding for the Disabled Association just isn't back to normal at all. Um, the chief executive Ed Brecher told us that only about 20% of its groups have been able to open and on average for less than 10% of their clients. So he said they're operating at about 2% of their usual activity base. Mm, and tell us about the double whammy situation that's arisen around some of those RDA groups and participants. So the problem is that, um, of course, groups that have riders who can ride independently are, are okay but it's the the physical the close physical contact that's needed not just from helping mount and dismount but a lot of riders need supporting while they're riding as well and also of course a lot of the participants and volunteers are vulnerable and shielding anyway so he's called that a double whammy so it's both social distancing and the fact that that those riders are are vulnerable people too so that's a really tricky situation and if our listeners on the podcast want to help the RDA at this time what's the best thing for them to do well Mr Brecher sort of said if if people want to help that you know that one of the good things to do could be go on the RDA website and find out your local group and see what support they need because uh, obviously different groups operate differently some just are groups who go in and rent um, uh, an equestrian centre every week or however often whereas others are centres that have got horses and that still need looking after so yeah look up who's local to you and see what help they need mm, thank you Eleanor that's a a good reminder to us all that that although it feels like the world is coming back to normal that's not the case for for every group and every person thank you so much for joining us and thank you also to Lucy and Catherine for giving us their insight today now it's time for some top advice from groom Alan Davies this episode I've been asked to talk about winter management it's um, something I get asked about quite a lot because seasons change and then 
things change with the horse's regime and everything, it can be tricky. And with our horses now, we tend, they don't tend to get a break. We tend to be going all year with the competition horses because the championship, the big championships are usually in August and then we have the summer championships in September and then we start thinking about the World Cup finals are usually in April, so we have to qualify all through the winter. So, and with the amount of turnout that Carl likes his horses to have, Carl likes to save on hay and shavings and things like that, and he likes them to be as natural as possible, get their heads down, stretch their legs, stretch their backs, um, and be horses. And obviously that starts to be a bit limited as the weather turns. Um, we're right by a river at our yard, so the, the turnout can get very wet. So you really have to think about changing the management completely. The amount of time they're going out in the field changes, and the amount of time they're stabled changes. So then you really need to start thinking about changing their feed regime and their hay regime. They're probably going to need you know, more hay if they're going to be coming in and standing in their stable more. We tend to use more hay in the, in the winter. I like to give them a net when they are in for a lot so they can um, trickle feed and sort of graze like they're naturally supposed to do. And then we might have to change the feeding regime and give them a little bit more bulk, um, a little bit more forage in their feed so they take longer to eat their hard feed and they don't wolf that down. And you need to um, then start thinking about the maintenance of, you know, washing their legs off and things and keeping them. I mean, prevention is better than cure, I always think, with mud fever and things like that. Um, if the horse's legs need to be washed, which generally ours do because, you know, when they're being exercised, they're having boots and bandages and things on. And so their legs need to be really clean for that. So um, I like them to get washed when they come in but I'm a real stickler about drying their legs I can't bear wet legs on horses I have a massive massive pile of old towels anyone that's throwing out any towels has to give them to me um, and then we um, stockpile them in the tack room so that each horse can have its legs dry with a clean dry towel um, and they get rubbed and rubbed until they are dry and there's no dripping dry their bellies and you know and um, I'll even rub their tails right down the backs of the legs so there's no dripping. One irritates the horse and two can just then sort of ferment and cause um, all sorts of problems. So I find the drying process is really, really important. And make sure the um, rugging is right. Make sure they've got the right rugs on. They're not too hot, they're not too cold. And just really keep an eye on them, keep an eye on their temperatures, keep the thermometer handy, keep an eye on their um, fluid intakes because they might not be drinking as much from the trough outside some horses like um, drinking out of the water trough in the field. Freestyle Charlotte's Grand Prix loves to go and take a great big drink out of the water trough when she goes out in the field so if they're not in the field as much and they're in more then you need to keep an eye. So I actually give her a bucket as well as her having a water drinker um, she gets a bucket so she can have a good old slurp out of the bucket as well so that's another thing to keep an eye on you need to know each individual horse what they like and what they don't like and how much their fluid intake is in a, a normal day and um, it sounds weird talking about it going into winter but it does change and then that's when they can get ill if they haven't got enough fluids and if they're in having more dry feed than normal 
then they need to top up their fluids. So it's a, a pretty important thing to keep an eye on. Vallegro is a great drinker. I always keep an eye on how much he's drinking. Um, I used to have to keep a, an eye on him when I was away at competitions. Quite often used to give him three buckets in his stable when we were away at competition because he's such a dunker. He loves to dunk his hay and his grass and stuff like that. So um, if it was in the stable at a show, I used to make sure he got enough fluid. He had one bucket to dunk, one to drink, and then a fresh one ready for him in case he's um, ruined the other two buckets. So it's just something to think about, keep an eye on, know your horse. And um, change of seasons is really important with horse management from summer to winter and then, then again spring into summer is really important. So just keep an eye and, and make sure you really know your horse. Thank you, Alan. Next week, Alan will be back with his top tips for clipping, which is definitely not my favourite job. We'll also be speaking to British dressage team rider Gareth Hughes. Thank you for listening today. And don't forget that if you would like to hear our weekly podcast on Thursday, 24 hours before it goes on public release, you can do so by joining our Horse and Hand Plus service. To find out more about the benefits of becoming a Horse and Hand Plus member, visit horseandhound.co.uk forward slash plus. Thank you for joining us this week. See you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.